Um, for those of you that are not familiar with our family, our ministry, as Mark says, we've uh, spent years in Russia and the Czech Republic. We work with the Masters Academy International. And so the goal is to train pastors around the world in uh, training centers and seminaries uh, to train not just men who would preach the word, but be shepherds of God's flock. And so it was a privilege to do that for uh, six years in Russia. Uh, we were actually the very last missionaries on the ground to see the final handover of the ministry from missionaries that started the ministry to Russian nationals who were fully trained to take that. And so it was actually the first TMEI school to do that, start with just missionaries, and now it's led solely by trained Russian nationals. And so that's the biblical model, isn't it? Because we were deported, and since we were deported, did the ministry die? No, because the, the nationals were trained, and they can always do better than we can as Westerners because they, they know the people, the culture, the language, the people, and, and uh, God has caused that ministry to become even stronger than ever because of that. And so that was our goal in the Czech Republic as well. Uh, you can see on the back of your, your sheet that you got this morning that uh, one of the goals that we saw is that now in the Czech Bible Institute that a majority of the things taught and administrated there are taught by Czech nationals. And so that's a goal. Uh, we wanted to be in the Czech Republic longer, but in the sovereignty of God, it was made clear that it's time for us to, to move on to our next ministry. And so we were thankful that you're praying for us and what that next step will be. So uh, we're excited to see what the Lord will do with our family and we, we, our hearts are still in the mission field, so we appreciate your continued prayers in that regard. Well, this morning, uh, since you have a missionary here, I want to talk about one of the aspects of the mission of the church, and that's evangelism. That's right out of Matthew 28, right? We make disciples. The second part of the mission of the church is to uh, disciple those disciples. So you make disciples, disciple the disciples. That's uh, evangelism, and then um, discipleship in the context of the local church. It's not like uh, your, the lenses on my glasses. You, you really see everyone in your life through these two lenses. Either the person that you're with is an evangelistic opportunity or a discipleship opportunity. This morning I'd like to talk about an issue in evangelism and particularly apologetics. What do I mean by apologetics? That's a defense of the faith. Um, well, first let's, let's remind ourselves of the gospel before we get to the issue that we'll talk about this morning. Uh, obviously, we, we understand as Christians that we are born in sin, right? None of us are good, even though a lot of people you talk to in culture think that they're good. But then when you ask, uh, how many lies have you told in your life? Have you stolen? Have you ever lusted in your heart? It becomes very evident quickly that the person realizes, no, okay, I'm not really good by God's standard. And so from there, we understand the good news that, that God has so loved the world that he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to pay the penalty for sin. But who is this Jesus Christ? He is not just simply a good man or a prophet. He is the second person of the divine trinity, right? And so he is born by the Virgin Mary through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, being truly God and truly man. Why is that important? He had to be truly God to take our place. He's in the sense, essence standing in your place to take the judgment that you deserve. So he must be truly human to do that to represent you. He also must be truly God in order to be the perfect Lamb of God that would be on the cross that could take uh, your sin upon himself. As John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Not just covers, but takes away the sin of the world. That's something that no uh, bull or goat or lamb could do. And so as Christ has lived the life that we cannot live, the perfect life, he is dying on the cross 
And what is the father doing? Is you know sometimes the, the father is portrayed as looking away as Christ is dying on the cross. No, it's the opposite. He is fully engaged, pouring upon Christ with wrath uh, that our sin deserves. Uh, he is paying the penalty of sin on the cross, something that we could never do ourselves. And so then, as Christ dies on the cross, he is buried in, in, in how many days is he raised? Three days later, he is raised again. And in the ascension, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so what is the command for us today? As the apostles preached, the disciples preached, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent is to turn away from sin. Turn away from yourself. Turn to Christ in faith. And you will be saved. That is the promise. And so this brings, as we were reminded just a few weeks ago, right, on Reformation Day, otherwise known as Halloween, <laughs> Uh, we're reminded of the Reformation uh, Day doctrine, which actually Luther developed later than 1517 uh, on October 31st, but it's this justification by faith alone, that you are saved not by works that you do or by majority of what Christ did, but some things you sprinkle in. No, it's uh, salvation is by works. Yes, the works of Christ. You add nothing to that. And the moment you try to add anything to that from reading scripture, circumcision, baptism, taking the Lord's Supper, good works, you are, in essence, blaspheming Christ. He has not done enough for your salvation. And so we are saved by faith alone in the works of Christ. Why? To the glory of God. That means we have nothing to boast about. Christ has done it all for us. We receive it as a gift. Therefore, he gets all the glory for our salvation. So that's the call this morning to any one of you who have never believed, never repented, repent even now. Believe, turn to Christ by faith, and the promise is in Scripture you will be saved. Now the challenge to this doctrine, and this is what we want to talk about today, what would our Catholic friends say to this, or uh, Eastern Orthodox friends? They would say, wait a minute, not so fast. What about James chapter 2, verse 24? And that's where we want to look at this morning in James chapter 2, and I'll read you the passage he says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You might say, well, wait a minute. What about what Paul says in like Romans 3, 28? For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What about Galatians 2, 16? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What? What is going on here between Paul and James? Are they contradicting one another? Even Martin Luther, a great German reformer, had difficulty with this in James and started to question the validity of the book of James because it was difficult to answer this. And so as good apologists, as good defenders of the faith, we need to have an answer. How do you explain what James is talking about here? Well, a big part of it, as you learn Bible interpretation, known as hermeneutics, is context Context, context. <clears throat> As we're looking at Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, we see that Paul is talking about a kind of justification that's in a, a legal format, that when you believe, the moment of belief, a one-time event, God pronounces righteousness upon you for that belief, as he did with Abraham. Abraham believed, and God counted it to him as what? Righteousness, one-time event. But when we look at the book of James we see that we're looking at a different context. James, written by the brother of Christ, 
probably the first book written in the New Testament. And who is James writing to? He's writing to those that have been dispersed for their faith. This is very difficult, I think, for us to, to imagine as Americans uh, growing up in freedom, uh, live very close to the war in, in Ukraine recently, and I've seen refugees come out carrying nothing but what they can hold in their hands and their children uh, displaced, having nothing, lost everything. And in essence, this is what is happening to these Jewish believers in the book of James. And so James is writing a persecuted people that are suffering for their faith. Immediately in chapter 1, what do you imagine that James is going to write to them about? How do you respond to trials? Very applicable, right? If you've lost everything, how do you respond? And then what happens sometimes when we go through trials? That leads to temptation, how you respond to that. And so he goes into temptation. And then how do you respond to one another? Do you give preference to one another? He talks about rich and poor. Uh, Do you give to those who can give nothing back to you? That's a great test of faith, isn't it? And so James is in this book really painting a portrait for us What does genuine Christianity look like? What does a true believer act like? When things are good and there's no persecution, and it's sometimes even good to come to church, it's good for business, make contacts, Christianity is easy. But when persecution hits, that's when true Christianity is put on display and when false professors are exposed. And so in our context, James is going to give us a contrast between dead faith and living faith. So first we're going to look at dead faith in verses 14 through 20. So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if someone, if it, if it has no works, excuse me, uh, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So let's hone in first on verse 14. What if someone says? In English, we have a phrase, talk is cheap. Like you can say, you can claim many things, but that does not necessarily make it true. You, a lot of people today, I identify as this. Just because you identify as something doesn't make it true, right? And so very critical in understanding this context is we're talking about a verbal claim. If someone says, I am a Christian, I have faith, how do you know? Where's the proof that you can see? In reality, it is in the long-term view of their life. Is their life becoming more like Christ, or is there no fruit at all? So maybe a good initial question we can ask is, how do you define saving faith? And as you look in the New Testament, is there any evidence of a type of faith that is non-saving faith? 
we ever find people believing, having a kind of belief, but yet not being born again? I think we do. We can look at James, uh, John chapter 2, where uh, Jesus is performing miracles, and, and people believe in him and start following him, but the text says Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? The text says because he knew what was in them. They were in it after bad motives. Yes, they believed in a a kind of uh, supernatural function in the life of Christ, but they were following him for free breakfast or other things. Uh, We could also look at the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, where some people have some kind of a, a spark of a type of belief and even responding with joy to the gospel, but over time, through persecution and sometimes through prosperity, uh, people began to fall away. If you really want proof that belief in Scripture that is described is not always saving belief, you just look at verse 19 in chapter 2 of James. The demons, the demons themselves, have a kind of faith, but which one of us wants to say that they are going to be in heaven? None of us would. And so uh, we do have a kind of false faith that we have in Scripture that is non-saving. So then, if we establish that, what is the measure of true faith? Uh, Throughout history, men have talked about three primary characteristics of saving faith. Number one, you have to understand the gospel. We talked about some of the essentials of the gospel this morning. You have to understand that, right? Because if you don't know the content of the gospel, you can't be saved by the gospel. But number two is you have to assent to the validity, the, the veracity, the truthfulness of what you understand is the content. Now the question is, are you saved when you understand the content of the gospel and you know it's true? Is that saving faith? Is that all saving faith is? And I would say, no. Why? Because that is the kind of faith that Satan himself has. The demons have that kind of faith. They know the content of the gospel and they know it's true, but none of them are saved. And I think that is probably in our churches with, if you grew up in the church, maybe that's your testimony too. You knew the content of the gospel. You had a sense that it's true. Maybe our children are in the same way, uh, believing now with a kind of faith. But that's why there is a third critical element of faith, and that is a heartfelt trust and repentant submission to the lordship of Christ. It is a giving of one's life to him in faith. But again, we return to the question, how do you know if someone's experienced this? Do Christians, do the elect, do the chosen, do the predestined walk around with a red dot on their forehead? No, no one does. And so James is going to give us evidences of what does someone with a living faith look like versus a dead faith. Another key question we have to ask, and this is really the key to the text, so this is very, very important is understanding the term justification here. Absolutely critical. We already talked about one kind of understanding of justification from Romans, from Galatians, Ephesians, and that is the kind of justification that's legal in nature. It is a one-time event that based upon repentant faith and trust in Christ that God the Father pronounces you righteous based on the work of Christ and your faith in him. And at that time, you are united to Christ. That means that all of Christ is yours at that point. You receive the righteousness of Christ. It is counted to you. How many times this has happened in your life? It is a one-time event. 
Now, the difficulty is we, we take that definition of justification and we kind of knee-jerk react and put that everywhere else in the Bible that we find the term justification. But what we don't understand oftentimes is there's another way to understand the term justification as well. And we see this in the English language, the Czech language, Russian language, probably Polish, is that the term justification could also be defined in the sense of vindication. And that's a great term to, to write down to remember in this context, vindication. But what is vindication? It is proving a claim to be true by evidence. Okay, just a few, what last week there was a claim there's going to be a red wave. Well, was that vindicated? Was that claim justified over time? Just think of something very practical, like my boys. I have four boys, one girl. All my boys are taller than I am now. They, they don't have the muscle mass uh, or the weight that I have, <laughs> but, but they have height on me. I'm a different weight class. I'll put it that way. And um, so let's say one of my boys comes to me and says, Dada, you know, I'm taller than you are now. I think I can out-wrestle you. I think I can tap you out if we get before. Let's move the furniture. And I, I think I, I think I got you. <clears throat> and so what does every good dad do? It's like, okay, bring it on. Like, let's move the, the furniture and, you know, be careful. That we're not going to break something and prove it. In other words, think about what I'm doing here. My son has made a claim. I can tap you out. And what am I saying? You need to justify that claim. You need to vindicate the claim. You need to prove the claim to be true by evidence and the evidence we're going to have in the home in front of everybody else. Um, that is the way we understand the, the term justification being used as well, right? We all have talked that way, justify that claim, or we've heard it. Now, the question you might be asking, well, okay, I understand that in the English language, but is that used also in the Bible? vindicate that claim. <laughs> so Matthew eleven nineteen is an, one example. You don't have to turn there. I can just read it to you. It's where Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds, what she does. Now, does it make sense to put a legal form of, def, uh, of justification in there? That doesn't make any sense at all. But it does make sense to say wisdom is proven or vindicated to be true wisdom by how someone acts. Right? Let me give you just one other example to, to prove what I'm saying. 1 Timothy 3.16. This is uh, thought to be an early hymn in the church. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, and he goes on. Okay, notice the term there, justification. Now, how can Christ be spoken of as being justified by the Spirit? Does, does Jesus need to be legally pronounced righteous? <laughs> Absolutely not. But it makes a lot of sense to say Jesus was justified or vindicated. In fact, if you're reading the ESV, the term vindicated is used there with a footnote to justification. But Jesus was vindicated to be who he claimed to be by what he did and who uh, empowered him to do what he did, the Holy Spirit. So he was vindicated by the Spirit. That is how the term justification is used in Scripture. So I think James' point here is clear that if someone says verbally, makes a claim, I'm a Christian, but consistently lives in sin, lives like the devil, 
has a secret lifestyle or secret life that no one knows about, the, the evidence is that the claim, I have faith, or I'm a Christian, the claim is a false claim. The life does not justify the confession. It's a false confession. It's a lie. Dead faith. So James is going to give us an example of that in verses 15 and 16. You can see, again, in the text, if, if someone comes in need of daily food and you say, be warmed and be filled. And this isn't just in general poor people, but the text says, who is coming to the door? A brother or a sister is coming to the door. This is in, in the family of faith. And they were without clothing in need of daily food. Remember the context. He's talking about Christian refugees here. And so what does this mean, uh, be warmed and be filled? It really depends on the voice in the, in the Greek language. It could be one of two things. Number one, it could be in the middle voice, essentially, be, you need to be warmed and be filled. In other words, you need to go get a J-O-B, uh, provide for yourself, and be warmed and be filled. In the passive voice, it could be like a pious prayer. Well, be warmed, be filled as you're kind of shutting the door in their face. And either option is upsetting, isn't it? It's angering. How could one Christian treat another Christian that way? Where's the compassion? Where is the love? Where is the hospitality? This almost mirrors Matthew 28. You remember when Jesus, or I'm sorry, 25, in all of it discourse where Jesus is talking to those on his left. He says, I was hungry, you gave me new food. Uh, water, you gave me nothing to drink. Uh, this is uh, essentially what, what James is talking about here as well. So verse 17, James uses this ultimate description uh, for a false confession. He says, even so faith, or a claim to faith, if it has no works, it's dead, being by itself. We understand this even from agriculture, don't we? Some of us try to plant things and it doesn't work out so well. So uh, we know just because we plant something doesn't mean it's living. If, if a tree is planted and one season passes, two seasons passes, there's no fruit being born. Uh, the tree is essentially dead. It's good for nothing except rooting up and burning. And so it is with an empty confession of faith. Anyone in this room this morning could say, I have faith, I am a Christian, but it could just be words. That faith could be fake, non-living, not alive, not real, just words. So now James is going to emphasize the empty content of the empty faith in verse 18. So here's, here's a scenario, a hypothetical situation. James says, someone may well say, this is the rejoinder, right? This is someone coming back to him to be critical. You have faith. I have works, and I think that's where the quotation should end. Uh, some of your translations might have quotations going to the end, but I think, uh, as is an ESV, that's where the quote is. You have faith, I have works, end quote. James responds by saying, show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. So this hypothetical situation, someone's going to talk back to James, be critical, look, James, we have a variety of gifts in this church. Some people have faith. Some people have works. We just need to get along, have peace, unity. You're okay. I'm okay. Let's just move forward. Right? But James is saying, how can you validate your claim to faith without the works? It's impossible. It's like saying, okay, I can take a football 
and I can throw it 80 yards. But I don't need to prove that. You just need to trust me. Versus someone that can come up. What's the name of the Ohio State quarterback? Okay, C.J. Stroud walks in the room. I won't say Bryce Young. Alabama's not doing too good this year, so we'll go with C.J. Stroud. <laughs> he walks into the room or on the field and launches the thing 80 yards. That's the difference between this claiming something without proving it by works versus claiming something and proving it by works. So, too, faith and works are inseparable. It's like if I had a quarter. So we got some kids here, right? What's on the, the two sides of the quarter? On one side is George Washington's face, and what's on the other side? The eagle, right? The eagle. Now, what if I were to give you a quarter and one side was blank? Let's say George Washington's head's there, but on the other side, the eagle's not there. Is that is that good money or is it bad money? Is somebody going to take that at the store? They're not going to take it. They'll say, it's invalid. Uh, it's of no good. It's, it's worthless because it doesn't have what's on the other side of the coin. And so it is with faith and works. These are two sides of the same coin that always go together. The German reformer Martin Luther says, It is impossible to separate works and faith as it is burning and shining from fire. They always go together. John Calvin says, Faith alone justifies... But the faith that justifies is never alone. They always go together. But at this point, James's critic is going to speak up again. And he's going to say, wait a minute, time out. I believe that God is one. And that's very important in Jewish history because that goes back to Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, every Israelite would say that morning evening that is their national statement of faith and so james's critic is saying i believe that uh, even contemporary christians today could say something very similar not necessarily shema but i say the nicene, nicene creed i say the apostles creed surely i must be a christian well james answers that and you can kind of see some sarcasm Dripping from the verses here, he says in verse 19 and 20, you believe that God's one. Okay, that's the Shema. You do well. In other words, awesome. But guess what? The demons also believe that. And they shudder. You see, this, this goes back to what I was talking about before, the three aspects of faith. Demons understand the truth. They know it's true. But... They're not born again, and that's interesting. There's no atheists or skeptics among the demons. Uh, they know the truth, and, and it's, it's fearful for them. They have a kind of faith, but it is non-saving. And so, brothers and sisters and guests here today, you, you can have absolutely correct doctrine. You can have conservative evangelical doctrine that you can read in Bible doctrine in, in the back of the book section today. But that doesn't mean that you're saved. Many people in hell have conservative evangelical doctrine. You must possess good doctrine, and good doctrine must possess you. But James takes this a little bit further, and, and kind of humiliating these false confessors that have no works. He's in essence saying, <clears throat> uh, the demons do something that you don't do. 
Like you claim to have faith and have no works, but the demons, they have a kind of faith and at least they have a response. At least they are trembling at God's word, but you're not doing anything in response. That's how dead your faith is. It is less than even the demons. That is the essence of dead faith. Empty confession. It's non-working. It's useless. It has no compassion for those that are suffering. It's dead, superficial content, and it does not save. As a side note, I think it's helpful to see what, uh, how James is determining true faith here. He's not saying, okay, these are all the things that you're doing that's sinful. Because you're doing all these sinful things, surely you can't be a Christian. What does he do? He's not talking about the things they're doing necessarily. He's talking about the things they're not doing. I think that's helpful because a lot of times we evangelize people. and say, Oh, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. But what James is doing is asking, well, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are you living like a Christian? That's the difference between the sin of commission and omission. So in verse 20, he's going to kind of spark our attention again. He's talking to you foolish man. And with our modern sensitivities, we're like, well, how would you, how would you talk to somebody that way? Why would you talk? How offensive is James being? I think it's a t- an attention-getting device. Like we grow up in church and we, uh, we we soak and sour in church and things don't really get our attention until someone uses a little bit sharp language. Like you need to wake up. Like you are behaving like a fool if you are believing this way and living this way. And so he ends verse 20. Do you want to be shown, foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In other words, do you need more convincing of what I'm saying? And this is where we're going to get into the second part of our outline, living faith. Living faith. Let's first look at verses 21 through 23. And uh, really, James is going to pull out his ace card here. Like, if you want to prove anything uh, as a New Testament Christian, use Abraham as your, your model, as your proof text. So he asks, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Okay, notice that. Justified by works? when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, if you read this kind of out of context or without the discussion that we've had this morning already, You might be already thinking legal form of justification. He's saved by works, saved by being willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. But now you know there's a second way to define justification. The question is, how do you determine which way he's using it in these verses? Because it seems like it could be a couple different, or both. Well, I think what's helpful is to see what are the two events in the life of Abraham that we see here? What are they? The two events, two major events. Number one, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Number two, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the question, next question is, which came first? Which came first? That's Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, reckoned it to him. Uh, that is the legal language that we talk about in this one-time event where you believe in repentance and 
God pronounces you righteous based upon faith. The next question is, well, okay, how can James then talk about Abraham being justified at his willingness to sacrifice Isaac? Do you know how many years that was later? That was like 30 years later. How can that justify Abraham? Well, that's where the second kind of justification comes in. That vindicated his faith. That showed that his faith was genuine because of his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Otherwise, you would have Abraham getting saved once in Genesis 15 and then 30 years later being saved again, which makes no sense. You have the two kinds of definition of justification right there. So Abraham experienced salvation when he believed. He exhibited the validity of that salvation upon his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And why does he, why was he willing to sacrifice Isaac? As verse 22 says, faith was working with the works. He already had faith. He was already justified. And so keeping uh, in the text here, that, that ex- exhibition of his faith and his works completed his faith. Uh, it was fulfilled. Why was James, why is James using that kind of language, like completed his faith? Think again of the tree. Is this planting a tree and seeing a tree really a completion or fulfillment of its function? No. Uh, when you uh, are able to pick the fruit off of the vine or off of the branch and enjoy that fruit, that is the fulfillment of com- or completion of the function of the tree. And so, yes, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac was a completion, a fulfillment, a vindication, a justification of his faith. Now, this leads us to the the verse we picked up at the very beginning, verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Hopefully now you know how to understand that, that, that in essence he's saying, you see that a man is justified or vindicated. I think it's helpful maybe even there to write that term vindication in your side margin just to help remind yourself of that. But a man is vindicated by works, and not by simply a claim to faith, that kind of faith alone. So when you see that in the context that way, it makes a lot of sense. But James is not done. He doesn't just stop with his ace card. He adds a fascinating second figure for proof of his argument, and that is Rahab, verse 25. In the same way, right? So he's going to try to prove with Rahab what he did with Abraham. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So you already know where I'm going, right? You smell what we're cooking uh, in the pulpit today, right? So we're, we're probably thinking about vindication. So Rahab the harlot was vindicated by her works, but that would mean that she would have to be saved before the spies came. And so you're probably thinking right now, Jonathan, you need to justify that claim. You need to vindicate what you're saying. Can you prove to us that she was saved before the spies came? Okay, great question. Let's turn to Judges together, or Joshua. Joshua chapter 2.
And notice the content of what she is saying. Is anyone using the new Legacy Standard Bible translation this morning? A couple people. Okay. It'll be more helpful as we look at what she's saying here. Joshua chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. So Rahab says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water. Now, why is Lord in all capital letters there? You can we can talk, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so whenever you see Lord all capitalized or God all capitalized, it is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So that's why the Legacy Standard Bible is important because they, they actually does Yahweh there. So what is Rahab doing? Uh, she already knows about Yahweh and believes in him before the spies ever came. And this is exactly what God promised uh, to Moses at the burning bush. I'm, I'm going to perform my miracles, my wonders, so that my name, my renown will go out to all the peoples and all peoples will know that I am Yahweh and there is no other in the earth. Well, wow, fulfillment already. She says, we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon to Og. You utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Confession of faith. Now, therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I've dealt kindly with you. And she goes on to talk about the preservation of her and her family. So like Abraham, in the same way, Rahab was judicially justified by faith, by God, prior to the arrival of the spies. And by the way, I think that shows this isn't some kind of... uh, arbitrary, random meeting of the spies with Rahab. This was sovereignly ordained because God had already saved Rahab before the spies came. Interesting how God works. So to prove his point, James uses Abraham and Rahab. If you're thinking critically about the text, you probably are asking, why does he use those two characters? Like totally two different opposite characters. Well, what distinguishes them? Obviously, one's a man. One's a woman, one's a patriarch, one's a prostitute, one's the father of the Jewish people, another one's a foreigner. Both are in line of the Messiah. He is a moral man. She is immoral. He's high and lifted up and she is low in the shadows. Why would James bring these two together? I think probably it's to show God saves in the same way in all times, all places, all levels of society. Gender doesn't matter. God doesn't save, have a Jewish gospel, Gentile gospel. All people are saved by faith alone in Him. And not only that, those that are saved will produce good fruit. Their lives will change based upon them being born again. What else did those two have in common? I think this is really cool to think about when you look at the context. We, we saw earlier how 
what happens if someone comes to your door and they don't have food and clothing? Both those two characters are known for their hospitality. You think about that? Abraham, hospitable to the three angels. Rahab, obviously, hospitable to the spies that came and she, she ministered to them at the risk of her own life. So what wonderful examples to prove James's point. Kind of as a last-ditch effort, verse 26, James says, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And here I think James is wanting to bring the stench of physical death into the conversation to hammer this nail longer that uh, friends, brothers and sisters, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. What is the fruit? You have a conscience about sin. You desire God's word. You desire to pray. From the death of human to the death of animals, we understand when there is death, there is no movement. There's no sound. There's nothing. His point is that the dead body without breath is no more alive than an empty confession of faith without works. So as we return to our original question this morning, does Paul contradict James? Absolutely not. They're really dealing with two different issues, and that becomes clear when we understand the very simple thing, how to define justification in two different ways. It's simple, isn't it? Once you understand that, it becomes very, very clear. I want you to listen to John MacArthur as he talks about Paul and James and what they're arguing against. MacArthur says, may I suggest to you that James and Paul are not standing face-to-face in confrontation, but they're standing back-to-back fighting two common enemies. Paul is fighting those who want salvation to be by works. James is fighting those people who want a salvation that does not demand anything. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace. James is saying that salvation only by grace produces works. There's no debate here. Paul is defending himself against legalistic salvation, and James is defending himself against a libertine, or you can kind of think of it as antinomian, you can live however you want, libertine approach that says you can believe and have no change in your life and still be saved. So, brothers and sisters, what we hopefully established this morning, that we are freely justified by faith as a gift to the glory of God, but that faith that saves is never alone. We are saved for a life of fruit-bearing. As we think about these things, hopefully that will challenge you and your own walk with the Lord as you examine yourself and maybe talk to your parents about these things, but also for those of you that are believers to give you confidence when you evangelize and come across those that would be pointing to texts like these to, to find comfort in their works that you can explain the text and present the gospel more effectively, more efficiently. Well, let's pray about these things. Father, we give you thanks for the clarity of your word. We have great joy this morning understanding the glories of the gospel, how you constructed and designed the gospel to bring all glory to yourself, for you are worthy You are deserving all praise and glory for our salvation, our sanctification, and our eventual glorification. Father, I pray that you would use us as we go out and we think on these things and we use these lessons in our evangelism and apologetic 
Father, I pray that you would use this message now and in the future for the salvation of souls and for uh, the motivation and, and zeal for our brothers and sisters to share the gospel for lost souls. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.